What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 30 of Narwhals. My name is Drew Wilson. Karen Flanagan. And with us today, we've got a show, Kamal. Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, depending yes. on your uh, depending longitude on, and latitude. Yes, depending on wherever you are. Depends on where this episode comes out. Yes. Uh, so, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are you What are you doing in this room? What are you doing here? Well, I'm not a narwhal, <laughs> so I'm actually not sure. You're not a speared dolphin? <laughs> Let me flip the script, actually, right, right, off the, right off the bat. What is a narwhal, and why is this show called Narwhals? Or is there an origin? I mean, I read there comic books origin. as a kid, mm-hmm. you know, and there would always be the origin issue mm-hmm. like when, you know, Logan became Wolverine. Episode 30 is our origin issue. Okay, yes. well, then I think that's appropriate, because 30 is a milestone. Yeah, yeah so we started originally... Uh, in 2014 yeah with the idea of interviewing people that were doing similar stuff to us so we both code design and run our own businesses side projects all that kind of stuff um so like let's interview those specific kind of people and after not too long we ran out we ran out of those. we didn't even start interviewing it was just you and me for for yeah nine or ten episodes yeah we decided to yep and um and so that's what it started out as and then we took a, a long break and then we took a long break again <laughs> Kind of unintentionally, but I was in RV traveling, and so it was difficult. Um, and so when we kicked it off again 10 episodes ago, yep. we decided, let's go ahead and make this more like a chat show. Keep the name, keep all that kind of jazz, because it's cool. Um, but we'll just we'll just chat with people about interesting people. They don't necessarily have to be in tech, but yeah. uh, we'll just chat. chat there, there's usually, there's at least some tangential startup connection. Yeah. Right? That's kind of the more... That's more the definition in this second season. Yep. Yeah. Season two. Season two, two years later. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, then I must acknowledge I'm I'm not a narwhal yes. by your definition because I don't code and I can't de- design stuff. At yeah. least not enough to you know uh, ship product. But but I am an entrepreneur, so I'm one of the three. So I guess I'm more yeah. like a, a humpback whale, let's say, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> we should come up with different whale types for each type of person. <laughs> This guy's totally a humpback. <laughs> He's a humpback. I'm all humpback. Yeah. <laughs> I admit it. So, yes, I, you know, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I've been uh, starting and running my own companies for more than 15 years now. I, I started uh, my first real company in college. I uh, grew up in Boston. It was a hip-hop record label oh, yeah. uh, called Raptivism. Uh, we used hip-hop as a channel to discuss what we thought were important social issues. So our first album was called No More Prisons. It was about the prison industrial complex, and we got together a bunch of rappers, some of which were, some of whom were famous at the time, uh, some of whom ended up becoming famous, like Kanye West and Common, that were kind of in the underground scene, you know, mm. back in the mid to late 90s was when we were doing this. Uh, and that was my first taste at not only entrepreneurship, but what today is referred to as social entrepreneurship. So trying to use, in our case, business, for-profit business as a vehicle to uh, address and hopefully solve uh, important issues. So uh, in the next 15 plus years that followed, I uh, started and and ran another handful uh, of companies in a variety of spaces from uh, a nonprofit youth development organization to uh, a crowdfunding platform for entrepreneurs to uh, recycling uh, technology. Um, You know, it's, I kind of, I've had a very, uh, uh, you know, up and down, you know, kind of, I would say path. If you look at like my LinkedIn, it seems really chaotic. Yeah. Um, but, but the common thread, you know, kind of through all of my ventures is, uh, the, the social enterprise side of it. So 
um, some reflection of my personal values that I'm trying to um, fuse into the venture Mm -hmm. uh, to do something more than just making money. Of course, making money is fundamental, uh, but it's not uh, the sole purpose for Mm -hmm. anything that I've done. And what I found, and I think a lot of successful people, you know, uh, around me, what I've seen is when you do something uh, because you're passionate about it, Mm -hmm. um, the paradox is that you end up making the most money. And that's definitely been the case, you know, for me. What was the recycling stuff you did? Yeah, so I just came back from Houston um, last night. Uh, the reason Houston. Why- if you're in New York, it's Houston. <laughs> it is. There's Houston Street. That's York, right. Called Houston. Street. In fact, I, I, you could say my story was going from Houston to Houston because <laughs> the record label, the record label, Raptivism was yeah, yeah. literally uh, on Houston Street. Look at that. We were, we were <laughs> how, did you, how did you know that? It's, from Houston to Houston. <laughs> yeah, so it's, that's Lower East Side of New York, baby. I've spent many, many years there. Uh, Yesterday, I got back from Houston, uh, and the reason is uh, when I was an MBA student in New York, I was in a business plan competition that Rice University hosts. It's the biggest one in the world. It's uh, about a $2 million now payout over three days. Uh, Forbes calls it the World Series and Super Bowl for student entrepreneurs. So it's it's big. It's in, I think, year 12 right now. So uh, I had applied for the competition with the recycling, the very first generation of the recycling business. Uh, when I was in business school, we were actually making backpacks out of recycled plastic bottles. That was our business plan as first year MBA students. And we got accepted into this competition. We were pretty surprised, but you know, we went out there uh, and we didn't do very well in the top, you know, 40 of the competition. So mm-hmm. 500 companies apply, or, you know, student companies apply, they pick 40, you come down there and the top, you know, six or so get hundreds of thousands if not millions. Do you have money. to have like a prototype with you or is it just paper, like just a business plan? Yeah. At, at this level, the RBPC, the Rice Business Plan Competition, most of the companies have either already won a local competition or have a prototype or as I found out yesterday, going full circle, have even raised in some cases a half a million mm-hmm. dollars. It, it's continued to sort of level up over the years. Mm-hmm. You know, Six years ago when I was in it, um, there weren't necessarily companies that had already raised their seed round. Now there are mm-hmm. uh, because it's continued to get so big. Uh, but well, we did have a prototype. Mm-hmm. So you, you're the best of the best in your area to make it to rice. That's kind of the you know got format. Um, so we got down there and like I said, we didn't win the actual competition. I mean, most of the companies that do win, you know, sort of the big money there are um, life science uh, or material science. Enterprise or- scheduling software. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know if they've made it yet, but uh, there's some software companies that, that, that do well, but they're generally you know, pretty fully baked. Mm-hmm. We had a backpack made out of recycled plastic bottles that we were making for, for kids. So we were, you know, it was like going to a, a gunfight, you know, with a backpack with a Pez container, you know, not, not even. Yeah. So uh, although that product never ended up really making it, it introduced us to Waste Management, which is the biggest recycling company in the world and right. is headquartered in Houston, and they're a uh, sponsor of the RBPC. So within a year from us meeting them there, uh, we were you know cultivating them to try and get a, basically uh, a sales you know contract, and we pivoted the company when they told us essentially we like the ideas that you guys have, but we're not a product company. We don't sell backpacks. Yeah. Why don't you come and take over our, at that time, sort of digital um, recycling properties. So the Facebook, you know, all the social channels, uh, work with us on developing some apps, some software uh, to engage people in recycling, which was the whole purpose of the backpack. So the reason that we, you know, created the backpack, it, it was a, a tool to 
open up a discussion with children about recycling. Mm -hmm. So that was one way to do it. Another way was to, you know, essentially work on the marketing channels of the biggest recycler in the world. It was just a huge step up for us. So when waste management gives you a nice contract to run their social media and develop green technologies for them, you stop doing backpacks and you start doing that. And that's the pivot that we made. So we kind of went from soft goods to software. That's an easy pivot when they tell you what the pivot is. Yeah. Like this is your pivot. Do this now for us. That's, that's awesome. Could you imagine though, if waste management had their own, Product line. You go on a target man, got my waste management better. Right. Made, made out of old poo poo. <laughs> so, so in working with them for, it was a couple of years that we, we worked, you know, within waste, uh, they actually do poop to power, uh, technology. No so they have a sort of internal VC, uh, they call it organic growth and they invest in a number of sort of, you know, frontier recycling technology. So the bottles to, you know, anything bottles are turned into all kinds of stuff from to plate. lumber. <laughs> it's recycled plates. <laughs> that's a, see, that's a marketing contract. I wouldn't take you. You couldn't pay me enough for that one. Uh, but, but they do a lot, a lot of their investment is how to take recycled materials and turn it into something of higher value, whether it's, you know, energy or you awesome. know, water right. or, you know, um, a, a number of different things. So it was a great experience that then kind of, um, you know, uh, introduced me into the Houston, community which is growing and interestingly now having spent some time in san diego i would say houston and san diego are the two most similar startup ecosystems that i've been a part of because one they're both big on life science you know for example right. j labs has a incubator here in san diego and of course they have one in the bay they have one in boston but they also have one in houston mm. uh, the size of the startup economies here are comparable mm-hmm. you know you don't have the the mm-hmm. bay or new york you know, or even la scale but they're still you know relevant and and their growth rates are comparable so mm-hmm. houston and san diego are um surprisingly you know similar in a lot of ways are they at a, at a similar maturity point like have they right yeah i would say they're both in that you know high growth yeah. you know kind of stage huh. interesting interesting yeah. and is uh dallas how's that compared to houston those terms. Yeah, so I've spent some da- some time in Dallas as well, although more you know kind of in Houston. Um, I think Dallas is a little bit different. Um, you, you know, certainly, for example, don't have the life science um, yeah. you know sort of uh, blueprint in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Dallas is a lot more uh, retail mm-hmm. and you know kind of um, legacy Fortune five hundred company oriented. Yeah. So there's a lot of big you know uh, you know old school sort of fortune 500s that are headquartered in Dallas. In fact, I think there's more fortune 500s headquartered in Dallas than any other Mm. um, city, Mm. Uh, but they tend to be coming from legacy industries, not the sort of super high tech, you know, innovation. Yeah. I asked cause I've, I haven't spent much time in Houston, but I have in Dallas. So I was wondering what the two are compared like, Um, but that's interesting that it's close to San Diego. So you've started some companies, all that jazz and, but you grew up in Baston. Um, (laughs) But you don't have an accent. People always say that. Yeah. So the Same reality of Boston is there are certain communities where you get well, Ben the, Affleck uh, doesn't have an accent. Right. He, so he's from Cambridge, which is one of the places that you don't get as strong of an accent. And I actually went to elementary school, middle school in Cambridge. Uh, I, I grew up in the heart of the city of Boston. So actually near where the Red Sox play. I'm a Red Sox fan. Mm. Um, and uh, it's more like South Boston, Charlestown, mm-hmm. you know, Easty, uh, Westy, where you get that strong towny accent. Well, what's crazy is like you go outside of that and you go up north, and everyone's got a massive accent. Like yeah, the Maine and 
I mean, everybody up there has got like a huge accent. So it's like that one little pocket of the certain cities yeah. in Boston. I like, avoid it, but everyone else in the States has got right. an accent. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow <laughs> that was the one little pocket. It's like avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't get the accent. Yeah. What was it? Uh, what was it like growing up there? Like in the city of Boston? Well, I grew up in the eighties. So that was a, you know, kind of tumultuous time for Boston. It had one of the highest murder rates in the, in the country per capita. I was one of the only cities on the East Coast that gangbanged. Um, in those days, you know, a lot of the gang activity was out here, you know, LA and, you know, mm-hmm. obviously California and, you know, Chicago, um, Boston had its own local gangs and they were, you know, pretty, uh, you know, pretty influential, you know, mm-hmm. in the city. And, uh, unlike say Crips and Bloods by color, they were all, um, identified by sports teams. Mm. So for example, <laughs> that is such a Boston thing I'll, g- I'll give you do. an example. So <laughs> The the Goya Boys, which was a gang from from Mission Hill, you know what sports team they wore? Georgetown Hoyas. Yeah, all right, makes sense. The uh, is that basketball? Uh, yeah, it's college. That's college. Yeah, but uh, yes. the Heat Street Projects, which is actually where uh, Bobby Brown is from, uh, they would wear the Miami Heat insignia. So so on and so forth. Basically, That's every wild. neighborhood had its. Am own I thinking of the same team. Bobby Brown you're thinking of? Yes, you are. <laughs> the makeup one. Uh, no, you're not. Oh. <laughs> no, sir, you are not. We're going to have to ask you next time <laughs> okay, to verify. I, I, think, I think she is B-O-B-B-I, yeah. I believe. Uh, okay. I'm talking about Bobby with a Y, uh, uh, okay. ex-husband of the late Whitney Houston. Oh, yeah. okay. I uh, see. I didn't know. That's why I was like, "Wait a second. I've even heard, I don't even know yours. Thing. Right. Well, my wife used to wear uh, Bobby Brown makeup. I remember seeing like a little Bobby Brown like, right. thing. She may even be from Dallas. I don't know why I think okay. that, but there's some uh. somebody Google out there tweet at us. What? Where is Bobby with an I from? Bobby with a Y is probably a better illustration of the Boston that I grew up in. Give us a picture so. of Bobby with an I in a heat jersey, right? Just to further confuse things. That would be perpetrating. Yeah. That's what yeah. we call that. Uh, so yeah, I mean. Boston was an interesting city to grow up in. Obviously, it's got a lot of history. You know, there's a lot of great universities. I had ended up uh, going to Boston University. I had a scholarship. I was a Boston public school kid. So, you know, I think there were a lot of advantages also to growing up in Boston that you're surrounded by um, smart people. And then, you know, kind of in, I guess, what would then become more of a theme in my life, um, the innovation economy in Boston was, you know, really one of the only major, you know, kind of um, hubs in, in those days, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you know, uh, where, you know, the whole Route 128, you know, they call it Belt, you know, that's sort of the, the Palo Alto of, of Boston. Now a lot of things have moved into downtown Boston the same way that, you know, a lot of Palo Alto startups have moved into San Francisco. Uh, but in those days, I mean, a lot of the biggest companies, technology in the world came from Boston. So it was sort of in my, I would say, DNA, you know, mm-hmm. to kind of um, be attracted to, Mm-hmm. And uh, to, you know, um, follow that, you know, sort of spirit for the rest of my career. Mm. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm a proud Bostonian, you know, put it that way. I'm, I'm glad I ended up moving to New York City, lived there for 15 years, you know, working on uh, working on Houston, Houston Street. Houston Street. But uh, originally I'm uh, born and raised in the Fenway. Speaking of sports teams defining your conflicts, moved to New York for a while. I still rock my Red Sox hat, my jersey, going to Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Yeah. I lived in Queens, so I, I lived closer to uh, Shea Stadium or what's now City Field, right. you know, by the Mets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I still I still rep the Red Sox. How does the West Coast compare? So I chose to, to move, um, and for me, the sports is 
the same down here. <laughs> the sports enthusiasm is just on the same level. Yeah, well, I, I went. I went to Petco. Uh, you know, at the end of last baseball season, I guess it was around September for a San Diego Venture Group event. There we, were we seven were in the, people in the stands. It, well, there, there were there were you know a couple thousand people in the stands. I would say a, a good number of that was in the corporate booth. You know, with this group, and I was the only one outside watching the baseball game because no one gave a crap about what was happening on you, the field. You, you have it to was, remind people that it's going on. It yeah. was the Red Sox versus the Padres, so I actually oh, cared. You know, it was yeah. a chance for me to see my home team in my new home, uh, but everybody else was having, you Who know. Who won? Uh, the Red Sox did. Yeah. yeah. They they're playing the Padres. Yeah. yeah. That's the, 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 the answer to that question is, you know, 95% of the time is the other team. <laughs> Whoever's yeah. playing yeah. the Padres. Uh, yeah. I like the Padres. I play fantasy baseball. They've got some exciting uh, young talent, so I think okay. it, it'll, it'll get better over time. And we just lost uh, the only other sports team that we had, the only other professional we sports team. We did. Right, right. The Chargers Speaking going to L.A. Speaking of the enthusiasm for sports in San Diego, they just left. Yep, because they didn't get the stadium they wanted. Right, right. Well, it seems they like needed the, one with bigger fish tanks. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever it is they need. Uh, the startup scene and the sports scene here, I think, are going in different directions. So thankfully, this is not a podcast about professional athletes. It's yeah. startup. Right. It's narwhals. Right. You know, so, you know, we'd be a lot uh, less, I think, enthusiastic if we were doing these. I don't know what the equivalent would be for, you know, a, a sad San Diego sports team, but it, yeah. it wouldn't be a narwhal. It's like a magical. A in fact, I didn't even think it was real. I thought a narwhal was mystical, you know, yep. kind of creation of Elf the movie. No, man, there's other people that Elf think that. Movie, other yeah. people think that uh, that narwhals aren't real. Um, a buddy of mine doesn't think they're real. He even worked on National Geographic stuff, and he's like, "Oh, this stuff ain't real." And I was like, "Dude, it's uh, it's it's real. <laughs> it's very real. It's it's good knowledge to have because if a kid ever comes up to me, you know, and asks, say, hey, what's a narwhal?' You know, you don't want to give him the wrong answer. <laughs> yeah. You know, I try to accumulate as much kid. random knowledge as possible. Yeah, you don't yeah. want to say it doesn't exist, kid. Yeah. You know, grow but, up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that, that'll that'll stick with them forever. You yeah. know, it's uh, well, dude, you, back way back when, um, people would grab narwhal tusks, slice them off, and um, and then they would give them to like uh uh. Uh, what are they like royalty in different countries? And they would tell them that they were unicorn horns uh, because up in the north uh, they would find these unicorns and they would cut off the horns. And be like, here's a here's a unicorn horn. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it's a narwhal horn. Um, and so they themselves also kind of became mythic in that same kind of way for that reason. Okay, um, unicorns obviously aren't real. Narwhals are. However, man, if you look up, if you look up some ancient horses. Uh, from the north, you will see that there were horses at one point. We have remains of them that had a horn on their forehead, but it was like stout. It was like a like a stout horn. It wasn't like a big long the nubbin tusk. Yeah. Um, so this really is the so origin episode. Good, 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 good history there. Yeah, wow. It's got to be hard to lop off a narwhal's. Uh, well, man, what you do you is you kill that, that thing and you oh, pull okay. it on a boat, and then it's not going to move. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> That's what they do whaling, you know. Um, I picture it as more like a, a rodeo, you know, oh, yeah. kind of on top right of it. You're going, you know, in and out of the water, you know. And, uh, no, but I'm anti-poaching. I think, yeah. I think for the record, we all are. I'm, I'm pro-animal. Yeah, this, this went yeah. weird fast. Well, this origin story. Speaking of that kind of stuff, uh, something similar is why I'm talking about it. Uh, rhinos, you know, their horns are obviously very sought after in other countries, like um, in um, uh, the Philippines uh, and. Um, I don't remember if it was Indo or not. I was reading an article about it. But people there, it's like a status symbol for like your wealth. Uh, they want rhino horns. Um, and so 
uh, in South Africa, there are places that actually breed rhinos just for their horns. Mm. And they cut them off right before like the actual skin line where it would hurt. So you get these horns and they ship them off and sell them. Um, and then the rhino grows back. So you can get like eight to 10 horns in a rhino's lifetime. Uh, and so they actually like have thousands of rhinos roaming in there. It's like cattle herding except for rhinos for their horns. Uh, but I guess I was reading the article on about them. They're trying to like make it so you don't have to poach, but actually it's making it so po- people poach more often because they're creating a new demand because now there's so many people can get it cheaper. So people want it more. And what they found is that no matter like the reason people can still poach is because no matter the price, people will pay it for a rhino horn. So I guess it's like encouraging the poaching. So they're trying to. Well, so this is a problem that maybe we could solve through synthetic biology. So one of the things you asked me what I, how I feel about moving to San Diego is excited because I think there's a lot going on here in the sort of next frontier of innovation. I'd come from New York. So I was there for, you know, 15 years and just wanted to kind of switch up my lifestyle. That's why I moved over here. Uh, And now, you know, what I see happening in San Diego for me is really invigorating because, you know, it's growing fast you know, so, you know, coming back to that, you know, kind of trajectory that, you know, is happening in other places, you know, like, like Houston, you know, um, other fast growing startup communities. But then I think also in San Diego, important work is going on in fields like genomics and synthetic biology and, you know, kind of these really disrupt, like truly disruptive, like not just enterprise SaaS. Right. And I love enterprise SaaS guys. I've been one myself, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, the innovation here and the opportunity that San Diego has to be the leader, so not even a fast follower, but the leader in, for example, uh, the internet of DNA. So right. what I'd call yeah. IOD, you know, as opposed to IOT, I you just, know, San Diego can win in that space. And that's a huge multi-billion dollar world oh yeah. changing space. Right. I just bought um, uh, 23andMe for myself, my wife, and my kids. So we'll get, we'll check it out because 23andMe like two days yeah. ago finally got allowed, or maybe it was three days ago, finally got permission from the FDA to do the um, the health research and actually show that data. Before, when 23andMe started, they were just doing it, and the FDA was like, no, man, you can't tell people what the health is going to be. Yeah. And so then they could only do the ancestry stuff. And then just like three days yep. ago, they got approved again, so now you can actually get your health stuff. And there's another startup called Color, not the photo-sharing <laughs> million dollar (laughs) disaster. Disaster that that was. (laughs) Not that. Not that, but they bought the domain from them. Um, And uh, and it is pretty much the same thing as 23andMe. You do a DNA sample, except it's different. And I I know this because I just read up up about it uh, two days ago when I bought this stuff. Um, It's specific to cancer, and they have a different, more uh, robust uh, DNA testing infrastructure so it's actually better than 23andme in that aspect but it only but, focuses on cancer so when you say better you mean at detecting like higher it, resolution it finds markers yeah it finds- it, yeah it just has better uh, uh genomics um or better gene se- sequencing machines mm-hmm. that actually have higher resolution uh, uh to, to actually be able to uh, detect this stuff so the also the other difference is it's 100 percent physician-led so you have to either bring your own physician who's saying, all right, get these testings done, blah, 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 and he's going to look over the results as soon as they come in. Or if you don't have one, they give you a physician when mm-hmm. you go to the site. So that way, as soon as you get results, everything's actionable, that kind of thing. Yeah. But it's all purely for cancer, that kind of stuff. They and it's, it's uh, this is all like predictive, right? Like this, these... Well, it's not... This, ne- is, this is different from like CRISPR or something that's like, we're going to fix this. Yeah, This yeah, is yeah. more like... This is like... Here's so you, you have a 
guess at what might happen. It's analytical. Well, it's not necessarily they. I'm sure they do do predictions, but it's also like this is what's in your DNA right now. Yeah, this you have a marker for this. You have an eighty yeah. percent chance it's of analytics. Yeah, it's like this is what is in you at this moment, and then of course, yeah, they can they can predict stuff, uh, especially as more and more data comes on board. But um, right, and that's sort of the IO, you know, D, the Internet DNA, is that convergence of you know of analytics mm-hmm. and you know, storage and you know kind of well, um intelligence yeah. you know and data science i mean that's why this space is becoming really exciting right now and it's an interest it's interesting that it's all it's happening here right and like you know we what we do and who we talk to uh, we you know we're always kind of like oh biotech like it's it has all the money here it's got all the power in in san diego uh but at the same time it's like these people are literally going to change the world, like yeah. as we know it. Like a lot of the within our lifetime, machines are built very here soon, right? Yeah, and, and it's uh, going to be impacted by this stuff. And like, I'm not going to build an ad network that's going to positively impact the world the yeah. way that one little thing out of out of uh, Sorrento Valley might. Like, it's it's crazy. But but I think the software community has a major role to play sure. in this space. So that's kind of you know the the you know next you know wave of biotech is the synthesis between software and science. Mm. That's why this is exciting. And that's why San Diego, you know, can be now uh, a real player. Yeah. There's a company called Backblaze, which back in the day I used for backup storage before like Amazon had anything available, yada, yada, yada. It was really cheap. It was like $9 a month back then. That was really cheap to store uh, a lot of data on their service. Just like it's a backup thing. I put some stuff up there, never touched it. Better stuff came along. Um, which, by the way, if you're looking for a good backup solution, you should use Amazon Drive because you can unlimited storage for sixty dollars a year. It's insane. Amazon Drive. Yeah, it's 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 got all the same stuff as Dropbox, and you can like it's way better. It's just insanely good. Huh. Anyways, um, if you're looking, uh, was that was that a native ad? That was a native it ad. Sounded but, like it, but I'm not. Use Plasso. We're not, we're not sponsored by Amazon. It, it but, was it was well well integrated. <laughs> it's pretty good. But uh, we. Um, uh, so, so anyway, so backblazes, I get their, uh, email drips, like the drip emails. And one of them was about how they're working on something, a product, uh, with DNA storage. Right. Something mm-hmm. to store stuff, which I'm like, dang, that's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And I'm seeing stuff like that too. There's a company called, uh, Dodo Omnidata that's actually based here and they're using, um, synthetic, um, you know, basically DNA to store data. So it's that, you know, migration from magnetic tape you know, into um, DNA right. as a storage mechanism. Right. Yo, imagine so a future where all your data is stored inside your own body. Inside your own body. That'd be inside your own uh, fingernail. Yeah. That's all the space yeah. that you need You're to like, store. This is dedicated it, yeah. as it grows. Right. It's I think you can, you can store the whole city of San Diego, you know, in your left Don't foot. Don't clip your nails. Yeah, right. Lose all yeah. Population just went down. These are my kids' photos. Right. <laughs> no, but you for reals could. The future's exciting, man. The future's exciting. You for reals could. Yeah. Because all you'd have to do is dedicate some area of skin that you would just put under a little machine that would just... Yeah, file sharing is going to get weird. Scan it. Bump fingernails. Let me just rip you off this piece of... Here's some skin. piece of skin. Scan this. Oh, gross. Eat this epidermis. But, 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 like uh, the Matrix, if you want to find... Okay, so cannibals. The reason the cannibals ate other people isn't because of hunger. They ate other people because most all of them believed that if they ate you, they would gain your knowledge and your power. Right. And it was a way to show their power. Of they were ahead of their time is what you're saying. Yeah. So what we could do in the future is we could eat each other's skin 
and we would get each other's knowledge and power. Wouldn't that be great? It sounds amazing. I'm about to start investing in nail clippers because <laughs> that's going to be – you can't swap nails without nail clippers. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Good idea. <laughs> Sell uh, picks, pick, uh, picks and shovels in a gold rush, baby. <laughs> That's my one entrepreneurial tip for the day. Yeah, man. No, no but <laughs> invest in nail clippers. <laughs> but as we were talking about before with synthetic biology, um, there's those different groups of scientists who all separately came up with their own uh, synthetically grown hamburgers. Right. There's like four different groups that did it. And they got the price down, I think, like 250 grand to make a synthetically grown hamburger. And I was like, man, that's what I want to do. Right. So I started reach, researching into it a couple of years ago. And I talked to uh, a guy I know who is uh, a graduate from a, uh, um, from a um, university in um, Australia. I can't remember the name of it all of a sudden, Sydney or something like that. But anyways, he was in there for, uh, he's a microbiologist. And um, I was talking to him. I'm like, yo, I'm like, can we just like start a company and start making like meat? You know, because like what they do... For um, fermentation for yogurt is, you know, they take the milk and they put it in these giant vats mm-hmm. and they put in the yeast and then it eats it all and it makes it all yogurt. And you can just like industrialize this stuff. It's like, could we do that same thing for the meat and like make it cheaper? Or narwhal horns. <laughs> or narwhal horns. Synthetic ones. And and he's like, yeah, you can, uh, but no one would eat it. I'm like, why? He's like, well, because, you know, there's like a stigma. What, what, what all those burgers that were made, the reason that they were able to grow those cells fast enough Right, because you take like a stem cell and you you start the growth process and it grows really rapidly. Yeah. The reason it was able to grow rapidly and the and the the way to make it grow faster is to make the cells more and more cancerous. Mm-hmm. So it's actually cancerous cells that are the ones that are growing fast enough to make like a piece of meat. So it's like that's like where the science is at. And unless you somehow think of a totally different way, that's where it's always going to be. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, dang man, that's crazy. I got good news for you. So there's a company, for example, called Memphis Meats. Mm-hmm. They chose to use, you know, kind of the association to make it seem that real. They've raised like fifty, sixty million dollars, and they're basically doing that without making the burger toxic. Coming onto market soon, like wow. in the next like year. What wow. they're using to grow it? So how how they would grow cells so quickly without them being cancer? That's what can- well, cancer cells you know, are. Four plus years later, from when it yeah. sounds like you first learned about it, a lot has happened in yeah. that time, you know, particularly in the, these spaces of synthetic biology. Yeah. So. And if you could use something, uh, um, yeah, I mean, like CRISPR is one technology, but there's a couple others now mm-hmm. that are even more targeted um, using uh, not just the, because CRISPR uses the actual D, um, the actual proteins process and the way the DNA replicates and the way those little guys come along the chain mm-hmm. and like fix things. There's other ways to use it right now with uh, viruses that go in there and target specific yeah. things and cut them out. That kind of thing. You can engineer a virus to go. That's essentially what CRISPR is, right? Yeah, but it uh, CRISPR uses the actual DNA's process itself. It doesn't use viruses to do it. It uses the actual process um, that the I can't remember the name of it, but when the DNA splits and creates another yeah. mitosis, but there's something else in there. Huh. It does. This has been an exciting episode of This Week in Genetics. With yeah, three geez. guys who don't have PhDs. <laughs> there's this thing in there, and I swear it's uh, that's how they do it. Yeah, uh, we should. We R- should. Really good summary though, Drew. I mean, you, you know your stuff. Yeah, I can't tell I'm telling you. Being sign me up. No, I'm being serious. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll have one of the burgers. We'll have one of the Memphis Meats burgers. Memphis Meats. Memphis Meats. Yeah, I would. I we would should do a Memphis Meats party. You don't have shape. To- Meets Memphis yes, Meats. Yes, and everyone has to eat this crazy burger. Let's, I let's do, do it. it. Because I'm in. People are spending so much money, so much land, so much water, so much everything to grow these giant beasts just to use some of them, yeah. their body parts for meat. And it's like, why couldn't you just grow this stuff? I mean, people don't quite, like everyone's against GMOs and all this because don't quite grasp the fact that 
everything we see, feel, touch, hear, well, not hear, but everything we see, touch, is made of chemicals. You are made of chemicals. Everything is chemicals. It's just different chemicals are toxic to our specific organs, mm-hmm. right? If you swap out those organs with something else, suddenly no longer toxic, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing you're doing to like to plants. Like you're suddenly making things toxic or not toxic to that specific organism, right? And so the same thing applies with these meats. Like if you can make it genetically the same and chemically the same as the patty from McDonald's, it's not going to do anything different in your body right. at all, ever. Yeah. It's yeah. impossible. It's like, it's like the, the fear that people have of irradiated food. Irradiated food means they cook that food using radiation. It does not, it, and radiation, what is that? That's heat. That's all it is. It's an element that, mm-hmm. that breaks down and then heat during that, um, that breakdown process, heat is expanded out of that and boom, heat stuff up. That's what radiation is. So if a food is irradiated and you look on the back of the label, which tons of food in the grocery mm-hmm. store is irradiated, you'll see the little fish with the cross through it. Uh, that means that there is no radiation in it. It just used radiation to heat it up, right? And so, but people are still kind of afraid of that. But I'm like, you don't understand. That's not how radiation works, you know? So I feel like it's the same thing with me. Like people just don't fully grasp yeah. how things work. And I feel like that education needs to get in place so the whole populace can be around the science community and be like, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you ain't got to convince me, player. I'm that vegetarian. A, yeah, I'm vegetarian. A, yeah. I already am. If I wasn't, I would be walking out of here as, you, a, as a vegetarian. I'm curious. Would you be a vegetarian if, if there was synthetic meat? I'm already a vegetarian, so I'd be an even you well, know, I, more I mean, point, uh, enthusiastic vegetarian because, as Buckminster Fuller said, you don't replace an old system with you know w- with words. You have to use an alternative. So you know, me personally, I'm fine eating a tofu burger or you know a, a lentil burger if I want a burger. But there are people out there, and I understand they want to have that texture, that flavor. You know, of Something a beef burger, they don't necessarily have a, you know, a, a high fidelity replacement right now. I would like to see the marketplace deliver that option and it will. Yeah. Uh, and I think that will also, you know, kind of make things better for all of us in it terms just, of the environment, in yeah, terms of, would be you know, insane. animal, uh, you know, animal rights. I'm not uh, kidding. And, and human health for that matter. In terms of like the earth's surface and the earth itself as a planet, the largest impact we, we, we could have would be to get rid of all the cattle. Like it takes up more space. Mm-hmm than anything else that humans use space for. Right. It's crazy. And the methane. Yeah. Yep. They fart. Cows burp and fart like, they're really rude, actually. They're super rude. They're rude. But yeah, it would be, it'd be quite awesome. We, uh, we haven't even gotten to Tech Coast Angels yet, <laughs> by the way. I always talk about that. You know, yeah. this, this is, by the way, this is the funnest podcast I've, <laughs> I've done in a long time. Anytime Drew and goes I've on learned a rant. A lot. I mean, Drew science. If he goes on a rant, yeah. I he, love uh, this. I was gonna say something too. Or long, I was gonna start trying to to battle you on some of those points, but you were you were in it. I wasn't gonna well, wasn't battle gonna, me. I was gonna get in your way. Battle no, me. I like let's, I like let's, it. Let's start a science battle. Give that man battle. give that man yeah. an SAT right yeah, now. This is good. This is good. <laughs> what, what were you gonna say though? I'm very curious. No, I'm gonna say I'm I'm all for you. Like I, I'm in the, I'm in the same I'm on the same boat. I think uh, it's an education thing. Like I think there's a lot of stigmas around certain things, and I think there's a lot of mis misinformation on certain things, and yeah. that's a, that's intentional i feel like that's been the way uh that it's been designed for a long time is to to have to be have a misconception about what this is or what this is yeah well so it's it's it is an education thing but that's only the start right so just like most social problems and this as a social entrepreneur you have to think systematically it's not just education it's also distribution which equals access right so talking about a company like memphis meats what they are planning to do is you know sell these fake burgers into the Whole Foods, into even the TGI Fridays of the world, 
um, you know, like energy right now, electric cars, you know, are experiencing kind of a, a you know, a, a huge uptick because you can actually get your car charged, you know, at the average, you know, um, you know, corner. Yeah. If you didn't have the chargers, then you wouldn't have the access to be mm-hmm. able to, you know, maintain an electric car. So right. you have to think that way in trying to solve any problem. It's not just about education. Yeah. People have to have access to it and yeah. that access has to be affordable as well. Right. Yeah. How many, how many Tesla owners have a Tesla because it's checks off that social impact box for them? Yep. There's got to be a percent. I mean, I, I'm sure a plenty do, but there's got to be a percentage that, that they, they couldn't care less. That's not what they're, that's not why they're right. doing it. Yeah. But it, the accessibility, yeah. we still get the benefit. Like the, the world still benefits from you from doing this, but uh, you wouldn't have it. You wouldn't do it in the first place if it weren't affordable and accessible. Right. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that I've seen over the years with you know social entrepreneurs making is trying to impose on people a conscience penalty. Right. So in other words, it's a product that maybe it's you know made from sustainable you know materials, but it breaks easier or it's way more expensive or it's hard to find. You can't expect that. The product needs to be good, you know, cost effective, delivered fast, you know, say two two out of three of those things and eco-friendly. Yep. That's when you have, you know, a winner on your hands. So mm. it should be the sort of third strike, you know, kind of in the value proposition. Mm. And I think those are really rare to come across just because um typical enterprise, typical capitalism is all about, you know, getting it cheaper, faster cost. And so they're really good at bringing the cost down. And that means that without taking into consideration the environment, all kind of stuff. So um, getting something that can do better than that is, is pretty hard to find. But with Tesla, we found that, you know, right. And that's what it just takes at scale. These, you know, people like Elon Musk, because Mm -hmm. if you, if you factor in the externalities of, uh, coal and oil based, you know, economy, then it's a lot more expensive than mm-hmm. the say three dollars we pay at the pump. And you know, if you anybody's been to Europe, you know they've been paying eight, nine dollars at the pump in, you know, equivalent currency for yep. 10, 15 years. Right. But if you factor in, you know, kind of those additional costs, you know, in say health uh, and the subsidies that go into fossil fuels, you know, the price is artificially, you know, kind of low that we pay here. Now things are starting to change where, you know, solar is actually reaching parity with, you know, other forms of right. of energy production, but it's taken a while because our infrastructure is based on, you know, these sort of archaic industrial systems. So it just takes a lot longer to, uh, you know, not only create the alternative, but replace it, you know, where there's a very, you know, kind of um, established, you know, infrastructure. That even, goes the other and way. even the way that it's talked about is still like super archaic. Mm-hmm. Like when you hear about it, you hear what you're supposed to hear. Like it, and I just read there's some said that Arby's employs more people than the entire coal industry in, in the U.S. It's like you, you would never think that. Like no that's not the way you're, you're supposed to think about it, right? Crazy. It's wild. Huh. I is wanna, that true? Somebody verify that. Yeah, somebody verify that and get back to us. Somehow, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't look at the live chat, um, <laughs> but what you you had mentioned, like about social guilt, and I think um, the organic movement is probably the most successful thing at that. Right? They give you social guilt about like, hey, eat organic. Everything else is killing the world, and it's way more expensive. So it's not. It's I mean, arguably, it's a better product uh, depending on which side of the fence you're on. However, it um, is way more expensive, cost prohibitive, and it's uh, much less widely available, I guess that's how I'll say it, uh, than non-organic foods, right? And so people who don't make 
a lot of money can't like buy organic on a daily basis all the time. Yet on Facebook, they're always getting that social guilt because there's always people reposting these things about, you know, these diets are supposed to be on and go organic, look at all these bad GMOs, all that kind of jazz. Um, and it's, it's actually, I feel like worked because now you go into like a Vons or Ralph's, they're one aisle of organic that used to be like one aisle, like four or five years ago is now most of the store, whole foods going out of business because all these other grocery stores are charging cheap, like significantly cheaper prices mm-hmm. than Whole Foods. And I feel like that whole thing has been like extraordinarily successful. And I feel like organic, uh, like the pitch is that it's better um, in all around because it's better for you as a human being to consume this because there's no GMOs in it. Uh, there's no hormones, all these things that can negatively affect you, uh, which I feel like is, is true, right? It, there's some, there's some merit to it. Uh, and on the, on the flip side, a lot of the stuff isn't tested thoroughly enough to know for sure if these things would negatively affect us. And in some cases, they're just straight up lying, right? Like yeah. these GMOs don't affect us like whatsoever. So I think the take organic foods, it's still under 5% of the total, you know, kind of um, food consumption. And to me, it could actually have been a lot higher if instead of focusing on, you know, the stick, there was more of an emphasis on the carrot in the positioning. So with uh, Bennu, which was the recycling rewards company, we would always say uh, that we focus on fortune, fun, fame, not guilt and shame. Because we found in the campaigns and the research that we did that people are actually more responsive to um, the positive reasons for a behavior right. than the negative reasons. Yes, you know, if something you know is bad for you, it's fair to point that out, but that doesn't actually create sustained behavior change. So, for example, in our you know recycling campaigns that we would do, let's say, on college campuses, we would provide students with uh, rewards and kind of exciting, we call it gamifying recycling, uh, to re- increase their, you know, their, their, uh, the recycled, you know, um, production in their dorms. And we'd pit the dorms against each other. We'd pit the campuses against each other. We'd create leaderboards. You know, we would uh, sort of like how Foursquare does. You sure. know, again, it's gamifying recycling. Um, ultimately, I think... That's a better approach, uh, focusing on the positives than the negatives. And I think if we had done that from the outset, uh, whether it's alternative energy production, whether it's organic foods, whether it's the recycling rate, all these things that, you know, I'd like to see much further along than they are, uh, they'd be three, four, five, ten X, you know, uh, higher than they are right now. Yeah, there's no way imposed guilt can create reliable, sustainable behavior. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, it's I think it's uh, it's. It's hard because um, there's so many players involved. It's like such like a wild west thing. Like there wasn't like one unified body. Mm-hmm. Um, and but my my point is like yeah. Drew, you're a family man. But let's yeah. just say you, you weren't a married man. Would you be more likely to go and find your wife by your aunt Ethel telling you at every Thanksgiving that uh, you know? She's up, she she thinks you should be married by now, or by your aunt Susie oh, introducing no, I, you to a, yeah. a number of lovely ladies. No, I totally I totally agree with what you're saying. No, for sure. I and I think I'm just saying like it's crazy how from social guilt mm-hmm. like it was able to even move right any any amount like, right absolutely like it did yep because. Like I, I like I was, and, and that just shows the demand. I mean, none of these yeah. companies are stupid, right? Like you can talk yeah. about the grocery store. If you see that they've increased and they have, you know, by 10 times the amount of, you know, natural products that they sell, that's because there's consumer demand, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Target, every decision they make is very scientifically, you know, driven and they don't waste a square foot of right. space on their retail floors. So that just shows kind of the, the demand that's out there. 
what you know i would like to see happen is this crossing the chasm of that being you know kind of the the fringe the green ghetto to that being the mainstream so for me the question is how do we mainstream you know kind of these healthy and sustainable and equitable behaviors mm-hmm. and and that's for me personally what my goal as an entrepreneur is all about my personal mission regardless yeah. of what i'm doing you know whether it's on the investment side whether it's on the startup side whether it's on the management side that's what fuels me as an entrepreneur how do you uh, this is going to change gears. I don't know. I don't know when we want to wrap this or how long we've been going. But how how does that work? How does your the things that interest you on a personal level, on a social level, um, how does that how does that cross the gap between pitches that you hear? Like, is that something that you actively uh, hunt for? Is mm-hmm. that something that you actively respond to? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So, you know, I think whether you're advising a company, whether you're investing in a company, whether you're working at a company, it's all about what value can you add. So for me personally, I can add the most value because of my network, because of my, you know, knowledge of industry, um, because of my passion for, you know, a particular project, you know, if it fits into my, you know, kind of framework of, of interest, which, you know, for me, you know, is about, uh, environmental stewardship, stewardship, uh, about, um, you know, animal, um, you know, treatment and about health and sustainability. Those are sort of the areas that I'm, you know, most passionate about social justice. So uh, I can contribute the most there. Having said that, you know, as Tech Coast Angels, there's a, a wide array of sort of interests. And part of my role is to connect the membership, which just in San Diego is over a hundred, you know, investors into opportunities where they can add the most value. And that can be very different, you know, from me. Uh, so my job is to connect those dots. Um, so I kind of have, you know, two lenses that I see right. my, you know, my, my work through. There's what I can do as an individual, but then there's what I can do, you know, representing TCA as a network, you know, to help entrepreneurs succeed. And and in general, you know, I believe that a rising tide lifts all boats. So the more wins there are in San Diego, regardless of the vertical, the better it is for the overall ecosystem, which then has a contagious and virtuous effect that will solve some of the problems that I'm personally more interested in just by having that um, that spirit of, you know, uh, uh, of winning and all of the, you know, sort of um, associated, you know, resources that come along right. with that spilling into the community. Totally. That's awesome. Yeah, we didn't even mention that you are running uh, Tech Coast Angels. So there it is, everybody. That's who he is. <laughs> <laughs> that was a long intro. Yeah, there it is. Finally, you get it. We had to get through that good. origin of narwhals first. Yeah. <laughs> so. Forget about a joke. Let's talk about narwhals. Sweet. All right. Well, that's all the time we got. Thanks, everyone, for sticking with us. Thanks, Shoke, for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Super good talking. Appreciate the opportunity. And we will, talk to you guys. Yeah, we'll see you all next time. See you guys.